Good morning, church. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for leading us in service. Now, the best way to follow the sermon is really to have your Bibles open to John chapter 3. When you find it helpful to have an outline, please download that, the bulletin, the e-bulletin on the, on the website. But the e-bulletin is not just for the sermon outline. You also see the names of all the new members. So it's good that you download them and uh, download it and pray for these new members as well. Now, I went to New Zealand uh, a couple of weeks ago to attend a wedding. Uh, that was my second time in New Zealand. And I remember that New Zealand can be quite cold even in summer. And, and this is around summertime. And this time around, I was heading to somewhere further south with only the ocean separating us and Antarctica. So I check out the temperature on the internet. Uh, it's about 7 degrees in the daytime and about 10 or just below 10 at night. Well, that's, that's all right temperature for me. All I needed was a jumper, right? And so off I went uh, with someone else and looking forward to the wedding and the nice, cool weather. And when I arrived, it was really very nice and cool. Now, I love it. It is like a natural air con and the, the air is very clean. However, it gets very chilly when you're at the beach or, you know, or any open area when the wind blows. Uh, that's when you start scrambling for a jumper, right? Uh, those with me who hate the cold suffer quite a bit. And just before and after the wedding, we had some time to do a bit of, you know, those tourist stuff, right? Going to the outdoors, you know, rafting and, and hiking. Now, it was all fun. All fun until we got sunburned. Now, if you look at me now, my, my face is still a bit chow ta, right? A bit dark. Now, you would think that this shouldn't happen, right? The assumption is that in cold weather, you don't get sunburned. Now, you only get sunburned when you're sweating like mad in Singapore, or that's what we think. And honestly, you, you don't even feel like you're getting burned in New Zealand until you are. See, the temperature is so nice, so cool, but the sun rays are actually burning through your skin. Obviously, we didn't bring any sunscreen with us, and it wasn't until we were quite cooked when we realized we needed sunscreen. A bit too late by then. It was an unexpected situation because of our wrong assumptions. But that's minor. See, we, I, we'll recover from that. After a while, I'll be uh, pretty white again. However, there are other unexpected situations that have greater significance. And today we are going to look at one in the Bible. See, John 3 records an unexpected visit by Nicodemus to Jesus. And through that conversation, we have an answer to a very important question. How can anyone have eternal life? How can anyone have eternal life? It's a very important question, not just for Nicodemus and the Jews then. It is also an important question for us because the answer to that question is still the same today. It will determine what eternity means for us. So let's begin with knowing who Nicodemus is. Now, three titles given to Nicodemus in John 3. Well, firstly, in verse 1, he is a Pharisee. See, a Pharisee belongs to a re Jewish religious group 
that follows a very strict observance of the law. However, they also prescribe a whole set of traditions, a whole set of, of uh, additional rules from their traditions. And these additional rules are to ensure that they do not break any of the Mosaic law. Therefore, in the eyes of any common Jew, the Pharisees are seen to be, oh, they are the faithful ones. They, they are the religious ones. Right? That's Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is also known as a ruler of the Jews. In all likelihood, he is part of the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling body over the Jews at the time. And lastly, in verse 10, Nicodemus is also known as the teacher of Israel. That means he is a very learned scholar in the Old Testament. See, he would have been the one who teaches regularly in a synagogue. So what can we conclude about Nicodemus as a person? In short, Nicodemus is a very important person. He is a leader both in the society and also in religious matters. And he is uh, probably fairly moral in his behaviour and has a good family background. And in modern day terms, you, know, you can consider him as perhaps a board member of the National Council of Churches in Singapore you know, or, or the head of a, of a Christian denomination or, or a principal of a Bible college. So if anyone is to enter the kingdom of God and have eternal life, we would think that Nicodemus would be the first in the line. He was the most qualified, he has the most knowledge, and he had the best social and religious background. If he cannot enter the kingdom of God, who else can, right? Yet he made an unexpected visit to Jesus. And at all times, he visited Jesus at night. Strange timing, isn't it? You don't rock up to someone's home, a stranger's home especially, at night. Was this sim just simply a, a historical fact? Because sometimes Jewish scholars, they are known to discuss religious matters all through the night. Or is it to highlight that Nicodemus is, you know, a bit embarrassed, a bit afraid that people will see him associating with this new upstart, upstart from Galilee. But in all likelihood, it is John's way of highlighting something that is deeper than what is on the surface. See, in, in John's Gospel, there's always this play of the themes of, of light and darkness. And we'll see that later in this chapter. See, darkness is often used to symbolically represent spiritual and moral deficiency. In other words, while Nicodemus may have visited Jesus truly in the night and in secret, but more significantly, he comes in spiritual blindness about Jesus' identity and moral deficiency in gaining eternal life. And that is evident in how he addresses Jesus. See, in verse 2, Nicodemus calls Jesus Rabbi, which is a Jewish way of calling someone a teacher. Because he recognized Jesus, you know, is a teacher who comes from God because he has performed a few signs or otherwise known as miracles. He acknowledges that, you know, unless God is with Jesus, Jesus won't be able to perform these signs. So on one hand, Nicodemus' view of Jesus is, still quite polite, quite respectful. But on the other hand, 
he also betrays his spiritual blindness. He did not identify Jesus as a prophet, but only as a teacher. See, many of the Old Testament prophets would have coupled their prophecies with powerful miracles. But Nicodemus, at this point, stopped short of calling Jesus a prophet. And he certainly has not considered Jesus being the Christ and the Son of Man. So Jesus gave an unexpected reply to Nicodemus in verse 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, why did Jesus give such an unexpected reply? Well, that's because there's an implied question from Nicodemus. See, just the other day, uh, I went out lunch uh, with my parents. And after lunch, I was uh, sending them back home. And then my mom suddenly asked me, which way are you taking? Eh? Well, that's quite an unusual and you know, an unexpected question, right? Because she never asked me such questions. She, whenever I'm driving, she just sits in the car and wait for me to get her to where she was supposed to go. Then it dawned upon me that it is actually an indirect question. So I just her, asked her, Mom, where do you want to go? Just tell me. Nah. You see, my mom wanted to go somewhere else instead of going, on, uh, going home, but she asked such an indirect question. Her true intention was for me to drop her somewhere else. Likewise, Nicodemus may be politely addressing Jesus, but he's in fact curious about Jesus' identity. He was trying to suss out whether you know, Jesus is he more or, or less than who he seems to be. But nonetheless, he is evaluating the standing of Jesus based on his own criterion of signs. So Jesus is going to blow his mind. It will be totally on a different criterion. Jesus is going to review where Nicodemus stands before he reviews who Jesus himself really is. He told Nicodemus that unless he is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now let's unpack a few terms here, right? What is the kingdom of God? This is not a phrase or a term that we use commonly. See, in the Jewish mind, the kingdom of God is when God and his anointed king will come to exert his rule over all the nations. He will crush all his enemies and he will restore Israel again. Now, this was the expectations of all the Jews at the time and who were under the Roman rule. And the assumption is that all the faithful Jews will automatically be part of this kingdom of God. And of all people, Nicodemus will be assumed to be in that kingdom. Therefore, Jesus' unexpected reply was totally baffling to him. Jesus gave a new criterion of entry. See, unless one is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Of course, Nicodemus is totally confused and he does not understand. He thinks Jesus meant it literally, right? That one must be born, reborn, you know, physically from a mother's womb. And for sure, Nicodemus has not watched Reborn Rich, right? He's not going to be reborn rich as a grandson of a Chebot's founder. 
But the reason why Nicodemus did not understand is because he has the wrong assumptions. He assumed that he will surely be in the kingdom of God. So Jesus went on to explain what being born again means from verse 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot inherit or he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, Jesus explains that to be born again is to be born of water and Spirit. Now that sounds still quite cryptic to all of us, right? But Jesus said in verse 10 that it shouldn't be cryptic for Nicodemus. Why? Because Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel and he should understand what Jesus is saying. Now that implies that whatever Jesus is saying regarding being born of water and the Spirit comes from the Old Testament. So the passage where the two words come together is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 27. Let me read that again for you. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now this passage in Ezekiel is written for the exiles. The Israelites have sinned against God and as judgment, God made all the other nations defeat Israel and the people were sent to exile all the different parts of the world. And God promised to bring them back to the land but more importantly, God will cleanse them of their sins. So the image here is that you know, of using clean water to wash all away, wash away all their uncleanness. But that's not all. God will give them a new heart and a new spirit. In other words, God is going to give them a new nature. He's going to remake them. This new nature, enabled by the Spirit, will help them to be obedient to God. Now, applying to John 3, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that, you know, that the only way he or anyone else can enter the kingdom of God is when God cleanses him of his sin and gives him a new nature to obey him. So it is not about how glorious his religious CV is, how much he knows, or what he has achieved. These things will never be enough because the problem of sin is not dealt with. If he remains a sinful human being, which Jesus defines as being born of flesh, he remains outside the kingdom. See, the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to be born of the water and the spirit. He must be cleansed from sin and transformed by God for obedience. However, this rebirth or this transformation by God's Spirit is not visible by the human eye. Hence, Jesus explained in, uh, in verses eight and 7 and 8 that it is like, it's like the wind. And in Greek, the, the word for wind and spirit is the same. See, you cannot see the wind, but you can experience 
its effects. You know, when I uh, visited Jeju Island in South Korea, there was this, you know, all these giant windmills all over the island. You know, and the blades of the windmill or the sails of the windmill kept turning and turning and turning. Now, what caused them to turn, we cannot see. But we can certainly feel and see the effects of the powerful wind on them, turning big windmills. While similarly, Nicodemus will not be able to comprehend or see God's Spirit, but his transformation work in people's lives will be evident and undeniable. But how will this, you know, this rebirth or, or this transformation be made possible? You see, up to now, Jesus showed the necessity of this new birth. He has yet to explain the means. Therefore, Nicodemus asked in verse 9, how can these things be? And so Jesus explains with another Old Testament passage. It is the account of the bronze snake in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 to 9. You see, when, when uh, Israel was in the wilderness, after escaping from uh, Egypt, they became impatient and they, they complained to God, they complained against Moses, you know, and God punished them by sending fiery serpents to bite the Israelites. And as a result of that, many of them died. The Israelites then repented and pleaded to Moses to you know, ask God to save them. And God did. God gave instructions to Moses to make a bronze snake and set it on a pole. And if anyone who was beaten would look at this bronze snake, this lifted up bronze snake, he would leave. But now you see, it was not the bronze snake that saved the people. God did. The people just needed to believe in God's given solution and to obey that instruction to be saved. So Jesus applied the same principle for Nicodemus in verses 14 to 15. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now that means for anyone to be born of water and the Spirit is to believe in Jesus, the Son of Man being lifted up. And by lifted up, it refers to Jesus being lifted up and crucified on the cross. See, Jesus' death cleanses us from our sin by taking on the punishment for that. And the Holy Spirit was given to all believers after Jesus died, resurrected, and went to be with the Father. Hence, this is the, this God's only means for someone to be born of the water and the Spirit. In other words, this is God's only solution for anyone to be saved. See, unless one trusts that Jesus died on the cross to cleanse us of our sins and to give us a new nature, there is no other way to enter this kingdom of God. How can anyone have eternal life? Well, there's only one answer. There's no other way apart from believing in Jesus and His death on the cross for us to have eternal life. But why would God send his son to do that? 
Why did God send His Son to be lifted up and die on the cross? And with that, we come to point three of the sermon and perhaps the most famous Bible verse. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now the word for at the start of the verse tells us that this is the reason, the reason God sent His Son to die. And that is because of His love for the world. And how deep is that love? But the depth of God's love can be measured by two things. It's measured by the worthiness of the recipient and the value of the gift. Now the recipient of God's love is the world. Now the world, according to John's Gospel, is the fallen, rebellious and wicked people against God. This means that the world does not deserve anything from God. In fact, verse 18 tells us that the world stands condemned already. So the world is a thoroughly unworthy recipient of God's gift of salvation in Christ. And secondly, God's love is measured by the value of the gift. His gift to us is His only Son, Jesus Christ. And this gift requires Jesus to suffer, be rejected, and cruelly nailed to the cross. Now, which parent will do that? Will you? Well, God did. In His abundance, grace, and immense love for us. Held together is like giving up your most precious possession to your worst enemies. Not to be cherished, but to be torn apart. Such is the depth of God's love for us. Now we, we would think that with such love, everyone will receive this, this gift of salvation and believe in Jesus, right? See, nobody rejects a big ang pao on Chinese New Year. But we know that it's not true as we look at the world today. Why would people refuse this gift of salvation? Verses 19 to 21 tells us the answer to that. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now the reason why people will reject this free and wonderful gift of salvation is because they love darkness rather than the light. See, the darkness refers to the wickedness of the fallen and rebellious world. And people do not want to give that up. You know, a lot of people in my, uh, my parents' generation, they're all in the 80s, 90s, they have this thing about using a walking stick. Right? Just 
they all take pride in not having the need to use one. You see, one of my aunties who is, who is almost 90 years old, uh, she fell a couple of times due to her weak legs, but she still refuses to use a walking stick or even an umbrella to help her. However, his elder brother, who is also my uncle, fully recognizes his weaknesses and frailty. So he humbly uses a walking stick without shame because he knows he needs it to keep safe. Now, similarly, everyone has to come to the light to humbly confess their sins and admit that they need Jesus' gift of salvation in order to have eternal life. See, the answer to how people can have eternal life is not to do good. If you look at verse 21, it is to do what is true. And, and that is to come into the light. If anyone insists on carrying on in our darkness of self-sufficiency and rebellion against God, then what remains is our condemned status. So in summary, how can anyone have eternal life? Well, it is to confess our sins before God and humbly ask God to save by believing in Jesus and His death on the cross. And through that humble confession and faith in Christ, Jesus can cleanse us of our sins and give us a new nature to enter the kingdom of God and have eternal life. Now that is the clear application and response required of us. I think many of us sitting here as Christians will not disagree with that. However, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus has deep warnings and lessons for us. See, Nicodemus, with all his knowledge of God's word and years of being a, an Israelite, you know, has a very fatal assumption. It's a fatal assumption of salvation by default and by activity. He assumes that he will be in the kingdom of God and have eternal life simply by being a Jew and a very devout Jew indeed. You know, at the wedding uh, dinner reception I attended in New Zealand, uh, I was seated with the pastor of the church there, uh, and I asked him, you know, you know what, ministry, what ministry is like, how ministry is like in, uh, in New Zealand? And he told me, oh, that is really hard, ministering to people of his generation. I said, oh, why is that so? He replied, and, uh, and I paraphrased, well, that's because they assume the gospel. They think they know it already. So they don't talk about it and they're not very keen to hear about it. They're just happy going around doing Christian things but still at the same time chasing many things in the world. Now this phenomenon is sometimes what we call the post-Christian era that has plagued many Western countries. See, their practices and their values can be very Christian, but Christ is missing in their lives. 
you know, I had a first-hand uh, interaction with, with someone like that on my flight to Auckland, you know, for transit. A man, you know, sitting beside me started a conversation, conversation that lasted almost the whole entire domestic flight, about one and a half hours. Now, it was a good conversation. Now, he shared with me, on the, uh, on the, with me that he's also a Presbyterian. I said, whoa, God must have elected a seat for you and for me, all right? Well, he told me he, he, he grew up as one. But he soon revealed that, well, he doesn't go to church anymore. And the last time he went was when his children were enrolled in a Christian school. And furthermore, he was totally at ease to share that his wife is not a Christian and he enjoys going to her religious activities. But he will still call himself a Christian and a Presbyterian. Now, could it be the same for us as well? See, some of us may be Christian for many years, attending services and having a wealth of knowledge of the Bible after years of being in a discipleship group. Others may be born in a Christian family. It's like, you know, being born, not with a silver spoon, but born with a Bible in your hand. Now, while it's a great privilege to have been taught, you know, the Bible since young, but it is not an entry pass to the kingdom of God. It is a fatal assumption to think that way. Now, back to New Zealand again. I think the elders should send me overseas often. I'll get all this illustration. <laughs> so I stayed in a hotel that is within walking distance from uh, the wedding dinner reception venue. Uh, and it was supposed to be held in a museum. So when I was at the hotel, you know, I searched on Google Maps and, I showed, and he showed me the way to the museum. And it was only a 10 minutes walk. Okay, yay! Right? I thought to myself, you know, that is easy. You know, and I gave myself double the time you know, needed and I, I left the hotel 20 minutes before time. You know, as I, as I walked, following the Google Maps directions and walked and walked and walked, it was beginning to look a bit strange. Right? There wasn't a big venue in sight. And then when I reached my destination according to Google Maps, I found to my horror that it was the wrong museum. Now, what a terrible assumption that the museum that pops up first on Google Maps is the right one. You know, I, I quickly tried to call whoever I knew was going to the reception and to find out the exact name of the museum. And I finally got it and searched on Google Maps again. Right? But good grief, it was in the opposite direction of the hotel. So it would take me another 25 to 30 minutes to get there on foot. And I am supposed to say grace and give thanks for the food. <laughs> they can't start without me, right? So I half ran in my suit and my, and my dress shoes uh, to the right museum. And I was late. But thankfully, the program allowed me to just sneak in and pray it on time. Phew. But this mistake is no biggie in the end. But let us not make the wrong assumption about our salvation. See, we may be in the wrong direction and we'll land up in the wrong place with no more chance to turn around. What is needed for anyone and us to be saved is to come to the light. Don't reason away and don't belittle 
our sins and stop enjoying life in the darkness. The right and true way is to come humbly to Jesus, to confess your sins. Admit to Jesus that all your Christian activities and mere knowledge of the Bible cannot save you. There's indeed nothing that your hands can do to save you. Plead instead for God to show His mercy to you as you believe in the loving and saving work of Jesus on the cross for you. That, my friends, is God's only way for salvation. So let us go to God in prayer. Let's take some time to, to come to Jesus the light and to confess your sins to Him and acknowledge that you have loved your days in the darkness. Heavenly Father, we, we come humbly before you and recognize that we have sinned against you. Many times we have ignored our sins, belittled them, or reasoned them away. And we have often hidden behind our Christian activities and assumed that we are all right. But dear Lord, please convict us with your word through your spirit that, that this is not true. Cause us to repent and live, live no longer in darkness. But point us instead to trust in your Son, to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to save. And may we find the confidence in our salvation not in our works, but in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.